today on the show we have Andrew Lindbergh, who is a radio producer who at a young age was obsessed with local media. In my room where people had like Michael Jordan, I had like radio personalities and a guy that made documentaries on my wall. Andrew chats about the business of radio and how it's changing to adapt to new audiences. If media is a pie, there's a lot more places to get media. I don't think it means that radio's dying. It just means that we found our niche. Media on the Radio is a podcast that features conversations with media professionals. Everyone from creators of media to those who do the marketing and distribution. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. Even going back before college, was there a time that you knew you really liked media or wanted to do it as a career? The Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team uh, were broadcast on KDKA growing up. And when I got into baseball, when I was like seven or eight, uh, I would listen to the games when I went to bed on the radio. And after the game, there would be a talk show, and it was called The Undercover Club with Bob Logue. And I was fascinated by it. It was a free-form call-in talk show. There were never any guests. It was just, and there was never really any topic. It was just kind of a, a club for people to call in, swap recipes, anything. You could call about anything. And I fell in love with the show, and I was in third grade. So everybody was watching Full House or whatever the show that was popular at the time, and I was listening to KDK Radio in my room in the dark. So that's where my love of radio started. I was a non-traditional student when I graduated. I was 29 when I graduated college. I graduated from Point Park University. I found out that they had a, a really good radio program, and I thought, hey, I'm going to get a degree. I didn't really know what I wanted to get it in. I know I just wanted one. So I went to college at Point Park. I transferred and uh, got into the radio, took all the radio classes I could, um, which is strange because radio, a lot of people think that it's kind of fading, but radio listenership is down uh, from 94% to about 93% of the American population in a week. So it's gone down a little bit, but it's still 93% of people. Yeah, it's funny because I remember when you were first getting into Point Park, and full disclosure, Andrew and I are cousins. We're really good friends. Uh, Andrew was the best man at my wedding. And I remember you were finishing up college, and and we were out at a bar drinking, and you were kind of, we were talking about life and yeah. next steps, and you are like... You know, I just really wanna, I really wanna get into radio, and I was like, I don't know, man. Like, you know, I, I'm the, I live in D.C. and I'm into video, and it seems to be booming, and and just if there's any, or social media, or there's a lot of other areas you can go. I don't know if radio is the best thing, and I remember your, I don't know if you remember your response, but I think it was like, yeah, but that's what I want to do. Yeah, that was basically <laughs> just, you know, yeah, you know, you have to try at least once, and if I hated it, you know, I'd do something else. I know a lot of people that get their degrees in college in something and then don't do anything with it. KDK is one of the top radio stations in Pittsburgh. The morning show I do with uh, Larry Richard and John Shumway is, if you look at the ratings, all age groups, which is called 12+, plus, um, or 13+, plus, we're number one, and we've been number one for years. And we're making headway in 25 to, th to 54. Those are the people you want to get. Those are where, like, the big the big money is. Uh, What's interesting for me is to hear you made a break into the radio business because there's very few jobs out there. And the, the yes. jobs, it's very competitive because um, there's a lot of people trying to, to get into media in general, but then also 
radio. So you very quickly um, landed a job as a producer. Yeah, it took me about four months to be part-time, which was, I thought was kind of impressive. I don't mean, I don't want to like toot my own horn, but, uh, you know, and it's also luck and timing. It was my final semester at Point Park and I needed to do an internship. And I naturally, I selected KDKA because of my history with it. I went in for the interview and the person that interviewed me was blown away by everything I knew about the station, was actually surprised that somebody my age in my late 20s was listening to KDKA because that's, I mean, and it's not, we do have younger listeners because I, you know, they call. I've talked to people that are like 22, 23. You know, it's a news talk station. And I think especially now with uh, millennials and, and, and older folks or people, you know, in the 20s and early 30s, we grew up. So I went in for the interview and, you know, I told her, you know, my the passion I kind of had for the radio and a little bit of the history and knowledge. And I became an intern in promotions. So I was only able to go in on Friday. So I would go in on Friday at like 8 a.m. and stay until like 8 at night or midnight because I needed to get 200 hours in in a semester. And so after I was done doing all my promotion stuff, she would let me uh, and the people in programming would let me hang out in the producer's booth. And I would just kind of sit in there for like five hours and annoy whoever was working. And after I graduated, uh, she offered me a job as a promotions assistant, which is basically if you've ever been to a fair, like um, a school fair or a community fair and like the radio stations there and it's like, hey, come spin the wheel for great prizes or a pen. That's what I did for a summer. It was fine, but it was kind of it was rough. I would not the work you wanted to be doing. No, but it was a foot in the door. Whatever you do, do the best you can at it. But. You know, I was keeping my ear close to the programming side of it, which is the the broadcasting side. And, you know, making friends with the hosts, trying to, like, introduce myself. I, I just, real quick, I, on the 4th of July, I was, I had to drive a car that was made to look like a race car for a uh, parade. And I was sitting in the car that had a, a beer sponsor on the front. KDKA has three other stations that are all owned by CBS. And there's a sports station, a country station, a top 40, and News Talk KDKA. So when I was a promotions assistant, I I did all four stations. So this one, I happened to be doing the country station that day. And it was 4th of July. It was like 90 degrees outside. And so I just kept the windows up. And I'm driving like two miles an hour down this small town's 4th of July festivities. The entire time I had NPR on. (laughs) And I kept the windows up so nobody would hear that I was listening to NPR in the country station's car. And I'm just giving people (laughs) thumbs up. And I, I felt like a clown because, you know. Nobody knows who poser. I am. I'm, I'm in a parade. Straight poser. But I'm basically just like, it's basically like, here, you're in the parade, but you're just driving the thing oh, that people want to look that. at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, here's a car and a parade, and you are... <laughs> You know, like it's like whenever, name. Yeah. yeah, it's like whenever like they have the, the parade, uh, the uh, Rose Rose Bowl parade. Yeah. And like the person's like inside driving it like two miles an hour. Like that was me. Like I'm just like driving the car like and uh, it, I remember that I was listening to they had discovered the Higgs boson. They finally found it. Right. So that's what that was. I spent my Fourth of July <laughs> as a promotion. This is so to make a short story long. um in September of that year, I somebody left for a new for a job, and um, the 
um, executive producer and news director of KDKA, um, you know, he emailed me and said, hey, there's position opening. I think you should apply for it. And yeah, how long did it take you from getting in the door with a part-time job to the, your full-time job? If you count the promotions part, it was May of 2012. And by the time I was full-time as the morning show producer, it was October of that year. Okay. So um, f it's funny because in my head, I saw it as a, you know, this, this amazing narrative that you kind of just walked in and got the <laughs> yeah. job. And based on and what my theory was is based on your, and I think this, this is definitely part of it, is based on your um, really focused down in that you knew you wanted to do this back when yeah. we had that conversation. You're like, well, this is what I want to do. So, yeah. And the other idea is that you already saw everyone that you're working with as, as semi-celebrities. It was strange because, yeah, I, not, I wasn't starstruck, right. but the two people that I work with now, Larry and John, I used to watch. They, had, they did TV together in the, the mid-'90s, and I watched them when I was getting ready for school. And now I'm like the producer and I, I've told them that story a couple of times and they don't like it because it makes them feel old, <laughs> but, well, but also there's, there's a string of Pittsburgh media personalities that, that you've either reached out to when you were younger that now you have kind of a personal or professional relationship. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit about when you were younger and you would reach out to these, to these individuals? Yeah. Look, I mean, Pittsburgh is obviously a smaller market. And like any city, it has its, you know, local celebrities. And there's a, well, he's on, P, he's done national PBS shows, is Rick yeah. Seebeck. And he um, makes documentaries um, about Pittsburgh. And he had said that he was going to make one about hot dogs during one of the PBS pledge drives, which are always fun to watch. He was like, yeah, you know, if anybody has any great ideas for like any hot dog stores we should go to. So I had a favorite hot dog place, and How I said, "How old were you at that point?" I was in sixth or seventh grade, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I called him, and he would give me an inch, and I would take a foot. Basically, he'd be like, "Oh yeah, here, you know, write me at the station, or you know, here's my office number." And once I would get something, I would like utilize it. You know, like if he gave me his like address, I'd probably like stop by and be like, "Hey, I have an idea." You know, <laughs> so you know, we kind of became friends and. This was before the hot dog program. He did one on the strip district of town of, in, in Pittsburgh, which is a place, wholesale produce. It has a, it's a great place to be on the weekends. It's very busy, but it's a place where you can get like Asian food, Chinese food, and it's all authentic, real Italian food. He invited me down, so I went down to just like be filmed. So my dad and I, we went into a diner and. He came up to me and started talking to me, and he was like, so what do you like about the Strip District? You're like, what's your favorite thing? And I'm just like, I like it. <laughs> and that's all he said. Like, I froze, and he was, like, looking at me with a smile on his face, like, okay. And then, you Did know, you get into the documentary? Oh, yeah. I'm in it, like, saying, six like, or seven times. Like oh, I, I, I'm not... I don't say anything. I'm right. just seen in five or six shots walking by. Like, I'm the extra that they had to use over and over again. But it goes, he was like, you know, I just want to see how the, what they did and how they did it. And I was just walking around, and he would be like, oh, you know, we're going to film. Why don't you walk? And it's funny because still to this day, if they show it, 
a family member or somebody on Facebook will like be like, "Hey, you saw you on TV last night." <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah. Well, I remember Rick Sebeck, and it was all your all your uh, badgering that probably set this up. We were a little bit older than that, I think, and we met him uh, for Chinese food near his where his PBS studio. That was. I think we were seniors in high school or had just graduated. Yeah. And we both were kind of interested in media, so he was nice enough to literally take us out to lunch and pay for lunch and, and chat with us. Yeah, and he showed us the station. And right, and we picked we his got brain this, about... Well, that's where they filmed uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, so right. we saw the, the, like, the, the tree. And, and we almost uh, got to meet Mr. Rogers. We too. were... It was a month before he died. Yeah. And he was supposed to be the Grand Marshal of the Rose Bowl Parade. Wow, right. two Rose Bowl references that I never <laughs> thought I'd be making. But uh, we went upstairs, and Mr. McFeely, David right. Newell, came in and was like, oh, you know, Fred's not here. And, I mean, we didn't know that he was sick at the time. And, right. Um, but that would have been the icing on the cake. But Mr. McFeely gave us little mini trolleys. Do you remember that? I still that? have that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because, like, now that I'm at KDKA, I've talked to Mr. McFeely a few times, and I had a conversation with him on the phone uh, late last year, and we talked for, like, 45 minutes on the phone about just, like, shooting the breeze. It was surreal. So talk a little bit about what, getting into the role of producer. So you're a morning show producer, and what does that mean? Yeah, I know. There's a lot of... Um, that's the question. This was the one question I was prepping for, and I still don't really have an answer for it <laughs> after doing this for two and a half years. I'm the behind-the-scenes person, which means I get up at around 3.15 in the morning, and I have to be there at 4. And the first thing I do when I come in is I take one of the local papers back to my desk. We have about six to eight guests a show, so that's a lot of my job is planning and trying to think of six or eight interesting topics that people would want to hear about the next day. And we normally plan right after the show at 9 o'clock, so we're trying to plan 24 hours of what people will be talking about. Uh, so that makes it a little difficult. For example, I just listened to the one with David Bowie. After, after David Bowie passed away, I listened to it because you release some content as a podcast. That's so another thing I it. do, yeah. It was really interesting because the guy was the f one of the first guys or, or the team that helped sign David Bowie initially. So how do you go about not only finding that person, but framing the conversation? It's for that, for that particular guest, it was somebody that one of the hosts had known. So I just gave him a call and asked him if he could jump on. And he was like, oh, sure, when? And I was like, in two minutes. You know, it was kind of like when something like that happens, like David Bowie, he had passed away. We had found out early Sunday. You know, when I went to bed, I no, I don't think anybody knew it happened overnight that the news came. We don't have a lot of time to plan for something like that, obviously. At 5 o'clock in the morning, people don't want wake-up calls and ask that they want to be on the radio. A lot of, I get probably about five to 600 emails a week from people pitching guests. And honestly, 90% of them aren't really interesting. One of the most rewarding feelings I get is when I book, when I come up with an idea... I'm able to find somebody and it, it comes through like the, the interview is, is, is good. Sometimes the interview doesn't really go the way that you wanted it to, <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't really get the information you wanted or they misunderstand you and think that they're going to be talking about something else. So I've had some, some strikeouts and when you find somebody that's good, you, you keep their, their, their number. <laughs> <laughs> you get there at 4am, you start to collect these stories or set up these guests or you have some 
pre-planning that you've done from the night before and the mm-hmm. day before. Um, but what kind of support do you have? Are you alone there for three hours before the next person gets in, or how does that work? When I come in, I you know, I pull some audio uh, that I get emailed to me, an entertainment report and some other things. And part of my job is to just try and arm them with as much information as possible. Uh, so I'll go to a couple news aggregate sites, Huffington Post, Drudge, some Pennsylvania local ones. Time Magazine is fantastic. What, and what are you looking for when you're going on the sites? What type of story? Things that people will want to talk about to other people at work or in their with their family. Not necessarily hard news. Sometimes it is. I'll just make something up. A Lego statue sells for $10 million at auction. That's something I think that... People be like, oh, wow, really? You know, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily something you need to know. It's something that you want to tell other people after you hear it. Hey, did you hear about that Lego statue? It sold a, for $10 million. It's a quick hit. It's, it fills time. Yeah. On a good day, I can pull like six or seven of those. What I'm interested in is when Larry and John show up, the hosts of the morning show, what's your first contact and what do you, what's the communication like? We're normally pretty good that we don't need to say much to each other right when the show is about to start because we have planned so well the day before. We also have a group text message going at all times. We try to make sure we're as prepared as possible. So at 5 o'clock in the morning when we're barely awake, that we're able to just like have a cold start and the engine's already running. With Arlington Independent Media, we've just launched WERA. We have, you know, this community radio station where... There's, you know, 80 new people trying to to do a radio show, and I'm teaching classes in radio, even though I've never wow. done it before. Really, do you tell people that when you're? Well, it's mainly the technology, and it's mainly the you know getting them comfortable with it. Yeah, we have a ton of people coming in the door with a lot of experience in college radio, but we also have a bunch of people that have never talked on a microphone before in radio and they want to do a radio show there's about half that want to do it live half of them want to do it pre-recorded and they turn it into us as almost like a podcast when there's something happening breaking news and it's not nothing really happens at 5 a.m but let's take for example protests in ferguson when that was happening and um we you know there's a lot of looting and fires and whatever so coming in, something like that, we call we call it the show's blown out. So everything that we plan for is not appropriate. Like we're going to talk about the uh, local sports teams or or the ten thousand ten million dollar Lego set yeah. is not relevant. We, yeah, or, or it would be crass if you talked about. Yeah, that. it's like oh, we're going to have a nutritionist come on to talk about things you should eat if you want to get in shape for the summer. On days like that, you can feel it at the end of the show. You're, you're exhausted. What is the feeling, though? Exhaustion. <laughs> is it it's exhaust- mental. It's mental. It, it's a it's a relief, and it, you're you're proud of what you were able to to get done. But it's also, I mean, you just you're tired. Not like you could fall asleep tired, but just like mentally exhausted. The accomplishment trumps the the, the tired. You know. Right. No, normally in that situation, it's something bad happening in the world. Right. But, you know, if you work in a news industry, you kind of have to have, you know, what they call gallows humor. You don't think about the fact that a bunch of people are just shot and killed. If you focus on every story, 
you would like go insane and be incredibly depressed. <laughs> so, I mean, we, you know, we try to keep it light and I know it sounds like we're awful people, but it's kind of our way of coping with it. I don't know if you want to use this cause it's kind of, you know, dark, but you know, Sandy Hook, um, the elementary students that I happened to walk in as the news was breaking and uh, I wasn't, I was still part-time and I was doing a show I'd never done before. It was just go, go, go for like eight hours straight. Like we're finding out that this is this person's name. He's the suspect. No, wait, it's this person. Names are being released, you know, and it's just breaking news. But obviously with breaking news, there's usually mistakes. I got there at noon, usually uh, about five or six o'clock. It finally hit me on what had happened. Like I thought about it and like I started like tearing up because I'd been going just dealing with it. It's, it's a news story. It's not, you don't think about it. And then whenever I finally did let myself think about it, it was, it was rough. But you're also f in your position, you're forced to look at it and think about it, you know, because maybe you're not processing it in the moment, but whereas anybody else could look at the headline and just swipe right. Can you talk about Larry and John as on-air talent? How much you rely on each other, but also they've been doing it for 14 years. Maybe what you've learned from them over the couple years, last couple of years. They've been together TV and radio for over 25 years now. So Larry and John were my first real, like they were, I was their producer. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't realize it at the time, but how good they are. And I'm not just saying this because I work with them, but I've heard from other people guests we've have we've had on this one this uh, psychologist we have who's nationally known he's on radio stations all across the country he's and he tells me how good Larry and John are that they're the best and they know how to interview you had got me on as a guest because yeah. I was doing a kickstarter what was funny about that was i had planned and stayed up late the night before wrote out all these talking points cuz mm -hmm. you had got me on i think it was like a 7 minute segment and Louie, my film partner, had done tons of radio, tons of television, tons of media in his long career. So he was coaching me. He's like, just stand up, pace around. You know, it helps to be like walking around. It definitely helps. And I was like, okay, okay. And so I had my notes and I was ready. And, and Larry gets on right away. And it's he's not asking me a question so much as pitching my project, making it sound amazing. And at the end of the seven minutes, after I got off the phone, like I talked to my phone partner. He's like, you did a great job. And I'm like, no, Larry did a great job. <laughs> because it's one thing to be, be able to like pull something out of somebody or set them up in a way. And I, I kind of abandoned the talking points, and, and it, he just made me feel comfortable. That's, you know? that's one of the things that I, when, we, when I book a guest, I don't say, do you want to join them for an interview? I say conversation. You have some information and some knowledge in a subject, and they, the two, Larry and John, have a, have a talented way of being able to extract the information. They're, they're really good, and I think I take them for granted sometimes because I just, it's so, I'm used to it. Ultimately, I would like to be on the air. I mean, that's my ultimate goal. I love what I do right now, but it's not where I ultimately want to be, so I'm learning a lot from them. So I'm learning a lot from them, things like that. So it's definitely a learning experience. Going back when we were really young, I remember our cousin had a tape recorder. Yes. Somebody had a tape recorder. 
We recorded a mock morning show. I created this radio personality. This is right. I had not gone through puberty yet, so I was able to do the voice better. But he was a soft-spoken man named Bill Shackman, and that was that was it. I would say Bill Shackman, and then I would go into my normal voice. Like that was it. We had fun, and John B. and I did you know comedy. It, yeah, it was basically a comedy CD, but we would try, we would I would throw in call letters to a fake radio station and tell them that they're listening to our show. I sent one of those tapes to a uh, Pittsburgh radio personality. His name's Jim Cren. I don't know. I thought it was good, and maybe he would hire me, even though child labor laws and <laughs> so many other factors were against me. I don't even know how old I was, but how many kids would send tapes like that to? to uh you know it's funny because when you did that i thought there's probably hundreds of thousands of kids t- <laughs> submitting these tapes <laughs> like he like, like he walks in and they're just like coming in like a santa like, sack like right. pouring like these right packages. oh look at all the fan mail oh here comes the fan mail again well jim was nice enough he wrote me a long letter <laughs> and sent me an autograph eight by ten that i framed and you know put up in my room where people had like michael jordan i had like late radio personalities and a guy that made documentaries on my wall and uh wow this is embarrassing i called him at the station every day for like two months straight i mean really? hi hi it's jim crennan uh he's in a meeting like <laughs> he was in a meeting every day which he probably was because they had to play on the show Right, now that you're looking back at it. And so one day I came home from school and I was laying, I was taking a nap for some reason. And my mom came in and woke me up and had the phone in her hand and go, Andrew, it's Jim Cren. <laughs> and I was like, like, am I dreaming? <laughs> like, this was it. This was big time. And so he was like, hey, like, how you doing? I, was, I talked to him. I was like shaking. Like, I probably almost peed my pants i was so excited and you know i talked to him for about 20 minutes or so and then you know i told him i wanted to do stand-up comedy and he told me he'd take me down to the local comedy club when i turned 18 and all this other stuff and so that was when caller id started (laughs) we had the big white box that showed you like who was calling right so i wrote the number down and i had called him this is like really embarrassing stuff. I had, I called him back once or twice with no answer. And then one time his wife called me back, like called me. I said, okay, go, it's Jim Krent's number. And it was his wife. And as sweet as she could be, basically what should have been said was weirdo, stop calling our house. Like, <laughs> but she said, she explained he's busy. And you need to stop calling our house. <laughs> so that was uh, that was something that but happened. There's a second part of the story, right? Don't you now work with him? I, yeah, he came to KDK and worked with us for for a while before he got his own show again. Right. So, and he, so it, finish the story now. Like, <laughs> what is it? Twenty years later. Yeah. Now you're working with him professionally, right? Yes. Now, uh, not anymore, but, I mean, he came in, and I told him the story, and he goes, Oh, my gosh, you're Andrew. He's like, I remember. He's like, and then you did that skit about the uh, pasta sauce. And I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, he actually listened to the tape. And it was just, it was very, it was kind of a full circle kind of thing. 
And it's funny because now I can text him and not be afraid that his wife's going to text me back and be like, get off <laughs> my husband's phone. <laughs> Your advice for people wanting to get into radio is just to be obsessed with all of the people that are... I, yeah, just be a weirdo. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's, a shrinking, it's a shrinking field. It's slowly becoming automated. And the fact that KDK is local and live from 5 a.m. until 11 p.m. is kind of rare, I think, and especially in a market like Pittsburgh. There's a, there's a couple competitors to KDKA, and the programs that they have are national. Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh-type garbage, you know. I feel like Pittsburgh is a, a unique city in the fact and the fact that it has really strong media outlets for how small it is it's very strange that you, you say that um dc has some decent quality television the production value mm-hmm. but pittsburgh has always had high production value when it comes to news there's there's a couple stations i've seen in new york city that don't have the production value that pittsburgh right. some pittsburgh, all all three main pittsburgh channels have i feel like part of that is the the demographics i mean i think it's an older Pittsburgh's an older city. It's a small enough market that people aren't moving there to get a job there. And it's a big enough market that it can sustain, you know, the, the amount of people that are listening to it. And it can sustain yeah. really high quality yeah. news and, and whatever else. And it also has, I bet the majority, I'm just guessing, but the majority of the people that work at the news outlets grew up, went to school, uh, and ro- raised their families in Pittsburgh. They're not coming from other places. This is another thing that's wrong with me. I remember commercials that are 20 years old. So they would, t- in the commercial, they would say, like, I'm Joe Blow, and I'm from Aetna, and I'm Sally. And, like, that was the hometown advantage, and you felt like these people know Pittsburgh. They're, I, they're my, yeah, they're my neighbor. As well as also the hometown advantage. Pittsburgh had the helicopter wars of the mid-'90s, which meant, Channel 11 had their helicopter, and they touted it as the high-tech helicopter. And they gave magnets out. I got in the mail a a Chopper 11 magnet. Oh, yeah, Chopper 11. And then uh, Channel 4 had their own helicopter. And then KDKA had two helicopters. (laughs) (laughs) And it became this battle for ratings and helicopter supremacy in the area. (laughs) And why the hell would why would the hell would you need two helicopters? Like there's two things like there's a fire there's a major fire over here and something's going on over here so we have to send two helicopters. Maybe in Los Angeles. Yeah, definitely <laughs> Los Angeles. I don't even think New York. I mean New York's big but like it was just the helicopter wars at the at the mid 90s. Those those were the best. Think how big the budgets were. Well, that's what I was about to say. The budgets were. That was when. Right. You know, and you know everybody has to to, to to squeeze you know and pinch and things like that and I, I I see it in our industry and it's sad you know you have to have a thick skin and if you don't you have to develop one because there's a chance you'll be let go you know somebody got laid off and I thought that I was like oh they do a really good job and they do and they still do probably on another station whenever they go there but budgets and well it's it's funny because you we talked. We talk about the the newspaper industry and how it was thirty percent profit, and they would, you know, they would send people across the world to do yeah. stories. Even small papers, you know, like huge budgets to do stories, long term stories. And then local news is 
being slashed as well. People have to do more with less. The whole idea of, yes, the, the ratings have gone down slightly, but the money, the actual budgets to, to run the radio stations is is limited. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, you know, as a pie and the slices are getting smaller, you just have to work with, if media is a pie, there's a lot more places to get media. And so I don't think it means that radio's dying. It just means that they we found our niche, you know, and... So it's just you don't have them for as long as you used to, maybe. You know, it's not in the 40s. It was you listen to the radio all day. My girlfriend just got me a radio from 1952 for my birthday. I saw the picture of that. It's awesome. And I was listening. There's another station that plays old-time radio on the weekends late at night. And that's probably that's my idea of absolute bliss is me being able to sit out, you know, with a cold drink listening to an old-time radio show, a detective. And some of them are really good. There's sci-fi shows that were written by Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick. And these people that, these names that you know as authors, were writing these shows before they got big. Well, it's funny. I mean, we opened this radio station at Arlington Independent Media, and I was completely un unsure of how it was going to go. And there's been hundreds of people coming through the doors taking classes or interested and then we get calls like somebody called like for the first week it was like what was that song you guys were playing yeah and like we haven't done any advertising for the station yet really other than word of mouth and like you know some news articles and stuff but it's like people are obsessed with radio like yeah there are there are people that are radio junkies oh yeah there's people that collect old radios i have one i'm afraid it may become a collection at some point like an obsession but i'm definitely not alone i, I did i did but there's like groups there's like yeah. conventions there's follow me on facebook.com backslash media on the radio or join the conversation on twitter at media on radio this is devin gallagher host of media on the radio and thanks for listening <laughs>